0: Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be talking about an exciting debate between Mike Winger and Matt Dillahunty from last year. And I've been excited about this because, as some of you know, I had my own debate with Matt Dillahunty, and I'm personal friends with Mike Winger, which I'm uh, very proud to call him a friend. It's just a great, wonderful channel that he's got over at Bible Thinker. You can find it by searching Mike Winger, and you can, of course, find Matt Dillahunty at The Atheist Experience or uh, by searching Matt Dillahunty. And so today we're going to be taking a look at this debate. I know it's an older debate, but I think that there are some things that need to be drawn out here that you could have missed when you first watched the debate. If you haven't seen the debate yet, the link is on the original video section of the description for this video. And um, I think you should check it out. I think there's a lot to glean from it. So we're not going to waste too much time. We're going to try to jump right into this. And uh, I, I want to say again, I really like both of these guys, obviously. Matt Dillahunty was very cordial when I met him in person. We had a friendly uh, but lively discussion in Waco at Baylor University. And so anything I say that might sound like it's a personal thing toward Matt, it's not personal. It's toward the arguments uh, that he presents, and the reasoning that he brings. And those, of course, aren't persons. And so we can criticize those. But I have um, respect for Matt Dillhunty as a debater and as a person who's able to represent Represent his position really well. So without further ado, we're going to jump right in. We're going to begin. By the way, this, this debate was on the question uh, of the resurrection. And uh, we're going to jump right in to some opening statements from Mike Winger, because this honestly, right from the beginning of this video, is one of my favorite things from this debate. This is something I took away. When, when you listen to worldview discussions and you take in apologetics material and what atheists have to say, there, it's very it's uncommon that you hear anything new but mike said something here that i think of almost every day of life and it's been um, really really helpful so i'm going to play this now from mike and we'll talk about it
1: others will just say things like and i've heard matt share this several times that he's not convinced i'm just not convinced and to, to this i just say my job isn't actually to make someone be convinced it's to present a reasonable case your job is to get convinced by reasonable cases so I'm not convinced that someone not being convinced is a reason for me to not be convinced.
0: I love this because what Mike is doing is actually more layered than what you might think. Um, So, yeah, my job isn't to convince you. My job is to present a reasonable case. It's your job to be convinced by reasonable cases. So the reason that this is so important is, obviously, it's just good advice when you're having discussions and you're trying to be persuasive. And by the way, for the Christians out there, there's nothing wrong with trying to be persuasive. The Bible says that Paul um, was persuading in the synagogues, and we saw him try to persuade um, in Acts 17 at the Areopagus, but there's more to it that's going on here. So it has to do with how Matt tries to set up a debate. Um, and I don't know whether this is intentional. I can't read Matt's mind. I can't psychoanalyze him. I don't think it's helpful to try and do that. But it it is it is true that when you're thinking about how things play out in practice, the way Matt does it. Here's what it looks like. So when when you're doing a debate, classically, the way that a debate is supposed to go is you have a debate question. And the reason you have a debate question is because someone's going to take the affirmative and someone's going to take the negative position, which means that it looks like this. So um, did Jesus rise from the dead will look like someone over here saying, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. And I'm going to give you reasons to think so. And over here, someone's saying, no, Jesus did not rise from the dead. And I'm going to shoot down the reasons and give reasons why we shouldn't think that Jesus rose from the dead. Same with God's existence. Does God exist? Yes, no. And so here's what here's that's how it's supposed to go. And then you judge who kind of presented the better case as far as the uh, mind of the audience member you know listening. Uh, but what Matt does is is he won't say no. He doesn't say no Jesus didn't rise from the dead or no God doesn't exist because of his explanation of what atheism is. His understanding of atheism as a lack of belief. I'm just not convinced that there is a God or that Jesus did rise from the dead. You can't have this seesaw sort of effect where you weigh it out. What, what Matt is, he's not over here in the no position. He's here in the middle in the I don't know position, like sitting in the middle of a seesaw which means that on balance, if Mike presents one good reason why you should believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you would expect it to go th- this way, and that the yes, Jesus rose from the dead would, at least in terms of the way debates work, would come out on top. Unfortunately, that's not how it comes out in practice. Because Matt sits in the in the middle here, how did I have it in the middle here? Mike's over here saying yes. Matt uh Matt is continually saying, yeah, but that doesn't convince me. Yeah, but that isn't a demonstration. Yeah, but I don't think that should persuade people. So the the way it looks is it still looks like you've got someone at either end. But what, what counts as winning for Mike over here is convincing Matt. So convincing Matt becomes the standard for winning the debate as far as that means anything. And so you, so if you haven't convinced Matt at the end of the debate, well, then you didn't win the debate and, and Matt can feel like you won. That is not how it works for a variety of reasons. First of all, um, Matt's, Matt isn't the arbiter of truth, right? Convincing Matt is is irrelevant to the facts of the matter. Uh, we want Matt to become convinced, of course, because we want Matt to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not winning the debate. That's not doing a good job. What? And this is why it's so important that Mike kind of calls this out early in the debate when he says, "Simply, hey, um, it's not my job to convince you. If you think that's winning this debate, that's not what Matt. My job here is not to convince you. My job is to present reasonable case. Your job, Matt, what you'll lose if you're not convinced." by a reasonable case if I present one. That is so important. I try to do the same thing in my debate with Matt, although not nearly as elegantly or eloquently as what Mike did, by saying, look, um, Matt believes, in a, Matt has a level of skepticism that is unreasonable. Uh, he has said things like that if someone parted in an ocean in Jesus' name, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't believe. If you would believe if someone pardoned notion in Jesus' name, then Matt's opinions about what should be and should not be convincing should have absolutely no hold on you. That's a, a less elegant way of saying what Mike said. And then, of course, we come to this other issue of we can't control what someone believes. We We can't, I can't make Matt believe something. That's not the way God wants it. God wants people to freely trust in him. So I can't force Matt. Mike can't make Matt believe the things that he should believe, the reasonable case that obviously exists that he should believe. He can't make that happen. So... Um, And it kind of goes back to like when I was a young preacher, they, that, you know, Mike's a preacher. And when I was a young preacher, uh, I remember that people saying that, like, when you, when you present the gospel and you want an unbeliever to come to faith in Christ, you can't make them come to faith in Christ. You can't control that result as, as uh, we could say it like that. So the Holy Spirit does that work. And the person, of course, has their free will. Uh, But you can't make them. So it's not, you don't have to feel like you failed. Now, obviously we want to do the best we can. We want to present a good, reasonable case. So we want to preach a good, solid sermon that does represent the gospel well, but ultimately we can't control those things. So the bottom line here is it's not Mike's job. It's not anyone's job to convince Matt. It's our job to present reasonable cases. And it's his job to be convinced by reasonable cases. And I just thought, Mike, that was so wonderful. The way you said that, that was the thing that I've taken away from this, that has really, helped a lot. So um, so. whenever I see people in the YouTube comment section who are atheists who say, oh yeah, more of the same old tired arguments, or that doesn't convince me, or still an atheist, or all these kind of things, I'm praying for you. I want you to come to Christ, but it's not my fault. Uh, our job is to present reasonable cases. Your job is to be convinced. So um, I thought that was a great thing to start out with, but then we get into this very interesting thing that has become kind of controversial within the YouTube worldview discussions arena, and that is Matt's Uh, discussion about claims. So let's hear what Matt has to say. Uh, My mom
2: has told me that she has seen demons with her own eyes. Now, I know my mom and she's uh, a generally honest person. Do I believe for one instant that she actually saw demons? No, because what she's presenting is the claim and not the evidence. Now, my mom's truthful enough that I'm willing to take her at her word that she experienced something and she's doing her best job to explain what it was using whatever language she has, but that doesn't mean that there's sufficient evidence yet to warrant demons or her seeing demons. So what is it that makes something convincing? Or what is it that should make something reasonably convincing? Well, we have to evaluate the claim and then the evidence for the claim. And one of the things that Mike consistently did uh, as he was talking was say, this is evidence, this is evidence, this is fact, this is evidence, this is evidence, when virtually everything that he was talking about at some level is the claim and not the evidence for it, right up to the end where he says, oh, well, you know, this is the evidence for the resurrection. No, these are the claims about a resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection is something else other than a whole bunch of people say it, they saw it happen or had an experience afterward.
0: So now this is really interesting because so the so claims aren't evidence and I thought Cameron did a really good job in a video on capturing Christianity that you can search and I'll put it in the description here where he was saying like um, something about this struck me as wrong or not right or off, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it until and then I finally did figure it out. So he's got this great video on it where he talks about how, look, you could say claims are assertions. You know, it's an assertion about something that's supposed to be a fact. Okay, and and Cameron said so. Let's break those down into two categories: reasonable and unreasonable assertions. Um, a reasonable assertion might be if my daughter tells me that a friend at school fell and busted his lip. That's a reasonable assertion. Um, an unreasonable assertion would be if my daughter tells me that there are aliens eating ice cream on another planet. Because when I ask her, she's probably going to say, I, "I'm just I just think there are," or "I I just." sense that there are something like that whereas the kid at school she could say i saw it happen all right now matt actually did on paul ogia's channel an hour-long um response to this 22-minute video in which he tried to take this apart and and honestly i know that matt was upset about the video that cameron did and upset that cameron didn't engage with him about that on a facebook comment this is kind of getting into some um, some stu- If you're not familiar with any of these characters, this may be completely uninteresting to you. But the fact is, what Matt said was, no, what Cameron's doing wrong here is, yeah, the, the daughter is presenting about a friend that fell and busted his lip at school. Um, the evidence, she's saying that I saw this happen. At least that's what I took him to be saying. Whereas the, the, um, the, the, the aliens eating ice cream on another planet, she's admitting that she's just making this up, right? Well, hold on. If if that would count as evidence, the claim plus the you saying it's a claim with the eyewitness testimony. I saw my friend fall and bust his lip at school. Well, that's what Mike's bringing. Mike's bringing uh, claims to eyewitness testimony, claims that this person saw this thing or I saw this thing or we saw this thing or whatever. And with his mother who says that she saw a demon, you may not believe that. But the fact is, she's claiming that she saw a demon or experienced a demon. Now, what Matt does admit that I think is right is, there's a difference between evidence and evidence that is sufficient to believe something, and that is a really important thing. But the minute you have a claim, I'll even go further than Cameron, the minute you have a claim, you do have something that counts for something. Now, you're going to disagree with what I say about this, probably, if, at least at first, but but I think if you stick with it, you'll understand what I mean. So, if let's take the thing about my daughter says that um, a friend at school bust, fell and busted his lip. Okay. Do do I do I have reason to believe, which I take to be synonymous with evidence? Do I have reason to believe that someone at her school fell and busted his lip today? Um, do I have more reason to believe that than before she told me that? Yes. Okay. Um, now let's take, uh, let's take this example. Let's, let's not go as extreme to aliens eating ice cream on another planet. But let's say I'm looking out my window at Henderson, Kentucky across the way right now. In, in Evansville, I'm looking across the Ohio River at, at Henderson, Kentucky. Let's say that a Henderson man came to me and he said, I was abducted by aliens last night. Do I have reason to believe now that a man in Kentucky was abducted by aliens? That is to say, do, do I have more reason to believe that than before he told me that claim? May sound crazy, but yeah. Now, I'm not saying I have sufficient reason to believe that it actually happened, but do I have a reason to believe it that I didn't have prior? I think that I do, all things being equal, which means I have some kind of evidence. Now, it may be ridiculously small amount of evidence that shouldn't convince me yet. But I have some evidence that I didn't have before. To show you this, by contrast, imagine that it was on the news that a thousand people in a state, in a let's say at a baseball field in Kentucky last night, all claimed to have seen uh, or been abducted by aliens or saw a ship land in the middle of the field or something. Okay, now do I have reason to believe? Yeah. Do I have more reason to believe than when it was just one man telling me that? Yes. Do I have sufficient reason to believe that it actually happened? that could be a further discussion still probably not because that would mean a whole lot of things that we'd have to look into but do i have more reason than just one person telling me an anecdotal story like that yes well what that means is if i have more reason with a thousand people than i have with one man then i did have one reason to believe with one man it's just very small okay now the reason i bring all this up is not to say anything about aliens the reason i bring this up is to say when someone makes a claim in a historical document that they saw something happen or that they experienced something it may not be sufficient in your mind to believe that the particular thing happened, but it does count for something, which means that this thing about claims aren't evidence is nonsense. It's They do count for something. They do count as a reason to believe. Therefore, they do count as evidence. It's just how much evidence do they count for, and that's where the debate lies, and that's where this should begin. This shouldn't begin with Matt dismissing those historical claims as though they're not evidence at all. When he says that Mike didn't bring any evidence, he just brought things that at some level are just the claim. That is false because as long as someone is claiming to have experienced or seen something, it does count for something. We're just talking about in this debate how sufficient is the reason to believe. So I think that's really, really important to mention. And we're going to see more about that as we move forward because what I think we see, and Mike calls this out, and I think he's absolutely right, is matt dismissing things as general with generalities if i understand mike correctly general answers that could possibly be true like well it could be that that the jesus resurrection story was just a legendary building up of something from like a fish tail getting bigger as it's told over time or maybe it was a conspiracy or maybe it was a lie, or maybe they were confused or maybe Uh, they were deceived or or whatever, you know, all these possible, maybe it was mass hallucination, all these possible general kind of answers, but he won't get into the nitty gritty and defend any of those possibilities. And we're going to talk more about that as we go on, but let's move on to the next thing that Matt says. And Mike, I will get back to your comments, but we're going to dig deeper into this as Matt talks about laziness as we come to these issues.
2: He also noted that legend is the laziest and most irresponsible, uh, potential explanation for this collection of facts. And I would argue that magic did it is the laziest and most irresponsible explanation for these facts. Uh, Legend is perfectly reasonable and there's nothing uh, supernatural or or required to appeal to the supernatural outside of that. I'm not going to be presenting anything mythicist um, other than noting that uh, we have a problem and it's a real problem for Christianity in that not all mythicists are wrong and they're not all exaggerating. But this notion that oh here's all these points i would like us to focus on these points and present counters if we have a murder and somebody says i'm convinced the butler did it the butler doesn't have an alibi and there's somebody over there who thinks they saw the butler is that enough to convict no it's not and at that point i don't have to in any way demonstrate that the butler had an alibi or that the butler didn't do it it's simply insufficient evidence to reach the conclusion that somebody's trying to push
0: Okay, first of all, this isn't a court of law. We're not talking about beyond reasonable doubt and all those kind of things. We're talking about what is reasonable to believe. And it may be that in a courtroom, someone presents enough evidence that it's reasonable to believe that the butler did it, but it's just not to the level that we can say beyond a reasonable doubt or something like that. So uh, it's a completely different thing. I know he wants to make them the same because it's colloquially pleasing or convincing or persuasive, but it's not the same thing. But let's get back to this laziness issue. So he says legend isn't the laziest thing. I actually agree with him. I don't know if Mike actually said that legend was the laziest thing, but i but if he did, I, I actually don't agree. I think it's incredibly lazy and I'll tell you why in just a moment but it's not the laziest thing and magic or, which is his mocking stand-in for the supernatural is also not the laziest thing you know what the laziest thing is the laziest thing is to dismiss it out of hand and just say Mike didn't bring any evidence as though you're putting your fingers in your ears saying Mike didn't bring any evidence because I don't consider claims to an eyewitness of an event or claims that that person had an eyewitness as evidence that counts for anything but as we previously argued And perhaps now you can see why I went off on a tangent about aliens and everything else is that um, it does count for something. So stop this nonsense about it's not evidence. We need to talk about how how good was the evidence? How good is it? Does that reason to believe rise to the level of sufficient to accept the claim? But the laziest thing is to throw out generalities and not argue in depth for any one of them and just dismiss it and say it's not evidence. That's incredibly lazy. And I think that's what we see throughout this debate, such that if you came away from this debate thinking that, well, I think Matt Dillahunty did better than Mike, or I think that Matt presented a better case, or that Matt was more persuasive than Mike, I don't know how you got there unless you got there because you think that perhaps Matt exuded more confidence, said things perhaps in, in you know with a, with more of a, um, uh, maybe you thought that he, he w- the rhetoric was more powerful or something like that. But we shouldn't be convinced by mere rhetoric. We should be convinced and persuaded by content. And I'm going to hammer this home again and again, but what Mike presented throughout this thing was um, history, uh, reasoning, inference to the best explanation. Uh, we get into some uh, geographic and socio-cultural issues about Rome and road systems and things like that and the way the structure was. What we got from Matt was, I just don't think any of that is evidence. He and bring any evidence and um, on, on on top of that um I don't I don't think that um, my epistemology allows for it, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but I, generalities that I'm not going to dig down into, that's the laziest thing to do. Um, why is legend uh, lazy as well, though? Uh, well, legend is lazy as well because it doesn't deal with the best evidence that we present for the resurrection, so stick with me on this. So the legend idea is the idea that, kind of like a fish tale, where it starts out, your grandpa catches a fish out of the local pond, and it's about like that, but the time he tells it to his Wife, it's a little bit bigger. By the time he tells it to the boys at Hardee's, it's about this big. And by the time he gets done telling everybody in town, you would get the impression that a catfish the size of a Volkswagen was pulled out of the community pond. Right? That's a, that's a legend-building thing. That's a fish tale that gets larger and larger. And so, what people want to say is something like, "Look, Mark was the first gospel to be written, and Jesus isn't uh, necessarily presented as the all-powerful divine figure that we see in John." But that's, of course, to misunderstand because Jesus. certainly there are there are things in Mark chapter one one, two, three, four, five that are only done by Yahweh that do indicate that Jesus is the divine son of God. But but the idea is that it grows as you get through the gospels out of the synoptics into John and that there's this legend building sort of thing. The problem with that is it completely dismisses some of the best evidence against that and for the claims. So, what is that evidence? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, and possibly verse 8, but I think if I remember correctly, that's where Paul adds himself. But The idea is he's, Paul is presenting here the gospel that he preached while he was with the Corinthians, that Jesus was dead, buried, and rose again according to the scriptures, that he appeared to the 12, that he appeared to the 500, that he appeared to James, um, that he appeared to Paul, last of all, as, as the last. So he appeared to all these people. This is what was preached while he was yet with them. Now, what, you say, but that's in the Bible, right? But it's in a section of the Bible that is accepted by even the hyperskeptical Jesus seminar. It's ex- it's accepted by historians across the board to be um, what is considered to be the, a creed of the early church that goes back before um, 1 Corinthians. In fact, in many of your Bibles, when you come to poetry or something like that, or a reference to a previous scripture it'll be structured like it'll be formatted differently in your bible so that you know that almost like poetry in the book of psalms or proverbs and that's what some of your bibles will have for verses three through seven and perhaps eight because it's understood by scholars across the board not just christians to be a creed of the early church that came before first corinthians so where did it come from well it, uh 1 Corinthians itself was was written probably between the early to mid 50s AD that's not controversial so that's really early already just 20 years or less after the events of the resurrection but if it can if that creed was already in existence before the writing of 1 Corinthians where did Paul get it well do you know that actually some people who are actually critics of the Christian faith will place it earlier than 5 years after the events of the resurrection Um, Some people, I can't remember if it's John Dominique Crossan or Robert Funk, put it um, at three years. Why is that? Well, it goes like this. So the conversion of Paul to Christianity comes between one and three years after the events of the resurrection. So let's take the difference of one to three years for Paul's conversion and say it's two years. Well, then afterwards in Galatians chapter one, we find out that Paul didn't talk to anyone for three years after he converted. So add three to the two years already, you've got five, at least five could be four, could be six, but we're going to be conservative and go with five. So after those five years, Paul went back to the home office in Jerusalem and consulted with um, the apostles. And he and b- they said that there was nothing that he was preaching that was wrong. They gave him the good hand of right hand of fellowship. Uh, but this is likely when he would have gotten a creedal statement that was in existence, this creed of the early church. So th- reasons like this are why even skeptical scholars will say that this creed goes back to within perhaps three to five years in that ballpark of the events of the resurrection. Now, the interesting thing about that is it absolutely excludes the legend building stuff, the fish tales, like a grandpa with the fish, that, that people want to say happens from Mark to John because the claims that we're using, that Mike is using as the central claims to build his case, that people believe that Jesus was dead, buried, and they had experiences that they interpreted as appearances of the risen Christ, were already happening almost immediately after the resurrection occurred, if not immediately after the resurrection, resurrection occurred. So that is really important. That's why it is lazy to say, well, it's just legend Billy, because you're not taking all the evidence into account and then arguing on the basis. Uh, Of that of that position. Instead, we get the mere generality, which just says, well, legend strikes me and my heart of hearts as um, less lazy than magic, which is um, a, a mocking of the supernatural. So all of that, I think, is vitally important to be understood to get this right. Also, we're not asking for him to prove the facts wrong or something or prove that Mike's wrong about all of this. What we're asking for is for him to present a defeater. Now, a defeater doesn't have to be certainty. A defeater is just one of these generalities that he's given that he's willing to say, I don't know if this is the case or not, but I'm going to argue for it. As a defeater to your claim that the resurrection is the best explanation. To explain to you how defeaters work, imagine that Mike Winger, Matt Dillahunty and myself were in a room with no windows and we were spending the whole day there for whatever reason. And at some point, Matt Dillahunty leaves to go to lunch or something and he comes back. And let's say when he comes back, he's drenched, he's dripping wet. And let's then say Mike Winger stands up and says the only explanation for how Matt could be dripping wet is that he got into um, a shower with his clothes on. Now, I may not know for sure whether that's right or not, but is that the best explanation? Because remember, Mike is trying to present the best explanation for the facts. We're all trying to present the best explanation for the facts surrounding the life and death of Jesus and the growth of the early church so all i have to do is present something that's more reasonable than the claim that matt got into the shower with his clothes on and that's how he got drenching wet i i'm it may be that that's what happened but we're looking for the best explanation i don't know for sure but i could say something like well no i mean it's a much better explanation it's more likely to be true that uh, he got caught in a thunderstorm and, and and it rained and he got wet that way that seems more reasonable then he got into the shower with his clothes on. I, it still may be that he got into the shower with his clothes on. It still may be that I'm wrong about the thunderstorm. But Mike's claim that he got it—that the only expl- or the best explanation is that he got into a shower with his clothes on—fades so long as there's a better explanation. What I'm saying here is that's how defeaters work. Matt doesn't have to say I know that the real truth of the facts surrounding the life and death of Jesus and the growth of the early church is that it's legend or that it's a conspiracy or that they were confused or whatever else. But he needs to take one or more of those and dig down and actually argue for them because he doesn't have to know that's the case but as long as he can show that one of those is a better explanation than the resurrection hypothesis he will have won the day the problem is he doesn't do that and that's why that's the more lazy thing is to just speak in generalities and mock what Mike is saying. And all of that is important to understand what's going on here. And this is why, if you think that Matt did better in some way, it's only because of rhetoric. It's only because of the way he structures his debates. And it's not because of the incredible content that he brought, because I didn't see any content. I saw Mike bringing content. And I say that again, not with disrespect to Matt, not like Matt, it's to the position and the stuff that he did bring. Let's move on to another thing that he says about the claim in the first Corinthians uh, Fifteen that, that there were 500 who saw the risen Christ. When you say Jesus appeared to the 500,
2: that's just a claim. We've spoken to no one from the 500, no one who was there to to even speak to the 500 or anything else. When you present these things as evidence, they are in fact just more and more claims from essentially the same sources, from anonymous authors.
0: Is it true that the claim about the 500 is just a claim? Well, it is a claim. Uh, In the sense that anything is just a claim, but does it include a kernel of evidential information there? I think that it does. So think about it this way. Um, We don't have access to the 500, and that is true. But it's not just a claim. It's more than that. Because think about it. What happened at the time was, uh, Paul was saying this to the Corinthians who could check if they wanted to. They could have gotten on a boat and gone over there. You say, yeah, but Paul doesn't give us the names of the 500. Well, the very reason that he says some of them have fallen asleep, which is a first century euphemism for some of them have died, but some of them are still alive, has to be to say, you can go check it out if you want to. Some of them are still alive. They could have asked Paul for direction in finding these 500. Paul would have certainly been able to provide them some direction. But let's say Paul didn't even do that. I live in a city of about 200,000 people in Evansville, Indiana, but I end up seeing some of the same people everywhere I go, even in obscure places that I don't typically go, which means not just that they're a part of my same daily routine. So if there were 500 people, let's say today, who claimed in Evansville to have seen, the risen Elvis Presley, I could easily find them without anyone pointing me that way. I could just ask a few people, do you know anyone who is a part of that group? I heard there was 500. And if there was, it wouldn't be too hard to locate them just by asking a few people because of the degrees of separation that aren't very large in a city of this size. So certainly when you go back to the cities in those days, so You could just turn up in that town, take a quick boat ride over there, and start asking people, and they could tell you. They could tell you uh, wh- where uh, these people were, and you could check it out yourself. The point is, Paul was providing them with direct eyewitness testimony if they wanted to go check. You say, yeah, but that doesn't help us at all because we don't have access to that. That's right. But here's the thing. Paul, it's not right that it doesn't provide us with anything for this reason. Paul was very interested in his... Um, in his uh, reputation. We see that in this very letter, Paul is defending his reputation at that time, he wouldn't have said something like that to people that could go check and defame his reputation by simply lying to them or repeating something that he didn't know for sure to be the case. So you may not have access to those 500, but the fact that he mentions it to those people counts for something. It's not just a claim. It's got evidential data in it. And uh, there's something like this in the gospels as well. Uh, If Richard Bauckham is right in his incredible book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, this is something like what we call an inclusio, sometimes a gospel pericope, a little story will be bookended by telling you about a person, um, in the story whose name is given, who seems like a kind of unimportant character. Um, and the, one of the reasons this may have been done and we know it looks like it may have been done in external biblical stuff too, and I've got all that information if anyone wants to ask me. Um, it, it, this is what's called an inclusio. It's almost like citing your source. And uh, you do that for future generations too, because even though future generations won't be, go back, be able to go back and check like you did, they know that you said it at a time when people could go back and check. So this is all very, very important. It is might be the reason why Mark begins his gospel with talking about Peter, and then at the end he talks about Peter, is because Peter was his source and there's internal evidence that that Peter was his source as well. So all of that, it seems to be really important. The 500 does count for something. It's not just a claim. But of course, you have to actually dig in and get into some of that stuff and inquire and try to understand what New Testament authors and and historians who are not even Christians think about these things instead of just dismissing it in a lazy way. That's very important. So let's move on now and let's see another claim that is kind of provocative from Matt. And we are coming back to you, Mike, I promise. But this is kind of provocative from Matt Dillahunty. God would have to be boneheadedly stupid to have the single most
2: important thing that he would ever have happen, happen in such a way where it could
0: not be reliably attested to. Okay, God would have to be boneheadedly stupid. Now, this is the kind of a statement where I want to say to Matt, think about world history. Think about the rapid expansion of the Christian church around the world such that there are very few people in what we call the 1040 window, people that haven't yet heard the gospel. Think about the dominant religion that Christianity became and then back up and say what you just said again real slowly and think it through. God would have to be boneheadedly stupid to do it this way. Now, here's the thing. If we had been there when and and been able to talk to God before he did it, here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna send my son he's gonna be the divine incarnate son of god he's never gonna write anything down he's never gonna travel far from his home country he's gonna get 12 people together but they're gonna be fishermen and a tax collector and people like this and and um they're gonna they're gonna start this thing in a backwater town in a place that or backwater country when the roman empire is dominant and they kill people that do this and guess what's gonna happen it's gonna blow your mind i think what's gonna happen i know because i'm god what's gonna happen is It's going to explode and become a dominant religion in the world and the whole world is going to hear the gospel and people are going to come to Christ and people are going to devote themselves to this such that 2000 plus years later, there are going to be PhD philosophers and scientists and preachers and homeless people and everyone in between all uh, desperately committed to this message because it is so evidential and because of how it changed their lives we would perhaps say to God, that is incredibly counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense at all. Give it to some king. Wait 2,000 years so we can get this thing on camera or something. Don't do it this way. That would have been the way perhaps we would have advised God because it is counterintuitive. But it has to count for something to the wisdom and providence of God that he did it that way that is incredibly counterintuitive, and it exploded like it has How in the world can you say that would be a boneheadedly stupid way to do it when guess what, Matt, you may not be convinced, but it worked. It worked in an incredibly extravagant and obvious way. Whether you think it's true or not, you have to admit that it worked better than any social movement like that has ever worked in the past or religious movement. That counts for a lot matt so boneheadly stupid i don't know but there's actually more that can be said and mike was the one who said it so let's listen to mike's response to this can you respond to the point about
2: jesus resurrection being arbitrary in time happening two thousand years ago when human history has been longer and when there were no cameras
1: you know i've given some thought to this first off i don't think cameras would help us because i think people would disregard it just as quickly with camera evidence as they do with anything else Um, as soon as you have cameras you have doctoring of the footage from cameras but but look at the time when it did happen. Um, at the time, the, the Greek language had spread throughout the known world. The Roman roads had been built so that they could travel quickly throughout large portions of the world. And the, it happened just at the time when the codex became popular, at the, towards the end of the first century, beginning of second century. The codex is the modern book. The book form is basically the, the best way to communicate information over long distances. And what we have is unifying languages easier travel around the world, and a fixed point in history that also matches later population explosions, it seems to me that the the, the timing of Jesus is strategic for getting the message out to large numbers of people um, in, in languages that they'll know and spreading it out um, in a very good way. I, I think that this kind of counts against it when you evaluate it very carefully.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this actually came at the first point in human history where we had road systems and riding abilities and such that would be able to be preserved easily and that this thing would spread like it, like it had spread. And there's actually more we can say on top of what Mike just said, which is that um, Roman soldiers who would, who were sent out to be in control of these different provinces and um, and to talk about these things, uh, to interact with these Christians would, we know this historically happened, they would convert to Christianity. And then when they were sent back to their own homelands, which may be out in the outskirts of the Roman Empire. They would then serve as missionaries and share this with their families and their communities, who would then become Christians too. So it worked as like a reverse mission endeavor that uh, that was brilliant. So how in the world can you say that this was boneheadedly stupid? It worked. And again, I want to point out what we're getting from Matt. uh, From Mike, what we're getting from Matt is we're getting um uh what we're getting sort of loud, confident, quick-witted dodging of evidence, dodging of alternative hypothesis, denial of reality uh, uh, that when and how Christianity emerged turned out to be brilliant Uh, clutching to an epistemology that results in a subjective and somewhat fluid standard of evidence and we're getting mockery. What are we getting from Mike? We're getting sociocultural information about the rapid expansion of Christianity. We're getting historical information. We're going to get some medical information about what happens to a person who is uh, plunged in the side with a spear before this is all done. We're getting uh, evidence, uh, you know, literary evidence from historical sources. We're getting all of this content. That's, again, why if you walk away from this thinking that, Matt, you should be persuaded by Matt, um, you might be persuaded by the rhetoric. You might be persuaded by the confidence. But rhetoric and confidence don't change the facts. Mike brought the facts. Let's move on to an interesting comment from Matt Dillahunty that I really had trouble unpacking and actually contacted a historian to try and see what they made out of it. And they were as puzzled by this as I was. The other thing is that we're talking about something from which there is zero
2: evidence from contemporary sources. And Mike will list a ton of sources. None of which are contemporary. Not even the Gospels are contemporary. Paul isn't contemporary. Um, Paul isn't contemporary. The various historians that people are likely to reference, Clement the First, is probably the closest to contemporary because he was at least born. Wait, who? Around the reference. Clement the First is probably the Clement? closest to contemporary because he was at least born around the time that the crucifixion and resurrection would have heard uh, occurred. But at a minimum, when he becomes
0: uh, when he gets in a position to report stuff, we're still talking decades later. Okay now this this is odd because when you say contemporary this is what I checked about when you say contemporary contemporary is uh c- can mean a couple of things right contemporary can mean um writing about it as it was happening like somebody watching the events and writing it down it could mean from around the same uh y- you know living at the same time as these events or something you know that that could be contemporary now here, here's the thing about this. I would think that what Matt was asking for in a contemporary source is someone writing about it as it's happening. Uh, but then he says, Paul isn't contemporary, and the closest we would have to a contemporary source would be Clement. Now, when you say the closest to a contemporary source we have would be Clement, because he was at least born around the time of the, these events, it sounds like you're talking about someone just living at the same time. That that isn't That's the closest? Well, in that sense, Paul would be much closer because he was writing about it and living during the same time in adulthood during the life of Jesus. So that that is uh, really odd. I'm really having a hard time trying to figure out exactly what Matt is trying to say here. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Now, the, the more important question, of course, would be something like, um, do we have, where did this information originate? Did it originate with um, eyewitnesses who could actually testify to this or someone interacting with eyewitnesses and then again I'll point you back to Jesus and the eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham because yes there we find out oh yeah uh, there's really good evidence that this goes back to eyewitnesses as I've said on the show before um, and if you look at Keener's commentary on Luke acts I think and then uh, maybe John what you find out is that the the majority uh, a slight majority of scholars, affirm that Mark was written by someone who had access to Peter and was giving you Peter's testimony, who was an eyewitness, obviously. Um, That Luke was written by someone who was a traveling companion of Paul and had access to some of the followers of Jesus, perhaps the women followers of Jesus, which if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a Luke, right? Um, And then that John was written by either uh, a lesser-known disciple of Jesus or someone giving you the testimony of a lesser-known disciple of Jesus. They don't affirm that Matthew was—you was, was um, uh, uh, you don't get a majority of scholars saying that Matthew was written by an eyewitness or someone giving you testimony of eyewitness. But guess what? Papias, who was writing toward the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, does talk about Matthew and him having written something. And so it, 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 you can make a case there from a very early source that Matthew is too. So this that's the more important question. Where does this information originate? But I don't understand at all this claim— That we want a contemporary source, and the closest thing to a contemporary source we have is Clement. When you've got Paul, it doesn't make any sense. I'm not making—that doesn't track with me at all. Let's go on to this thing uh, about—that tells us something about how Matt views uh, the claims and and whether you need God for this. Let's listen to what Matt says here.
2: The problem, in part, is that if you begin with the notion that there is a God who can create things and do things and be things— then all of a sudden talking donkeys and talking snakes and blood magic rituals and trinities and taking human form and dying and being resurrected all of a sudden become plausible because you've poisoned
0: the well by accepting a proposition okay now you this is amazing this, this is brilliant thank you matt thank you because what he's saying is all of if you if you presume god then all of this becomes plausible so all of you out there who say, well, even if you had a God, it wouldn't it wouldn't make the resurrection possible or whatever else. No, no, no. Matt is saying if you presume God talking snakes and talking donkeys and uh, rising from the dead and the Trinity and all that becomes plausible. Now, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and kind of try to steel man him here because I don't think what he, he meant what it sounded like he meant. Plausible in a technical way in these discussions means more likely to be true than false. I'll take it at least that what he means is... Um, You could then reasonably believe that if you knew there was a God or if you presume a God. But here's the other thing that I want to say about this. That's exactly how classical apologetics works. Classical apologetics starts with showing that God exists and then moves on to showing that God raised Jesus from the dead because we understand that if we can show that God exists, then the claim that God raised Jesus from the dead is more reasonable because if God can create a universe from nothing, then raising Jesus from the dead is small potatoes for him. So that's why we operate that way. Now, if the debate is just on the resurrection— We kind of have to isolate that and and table that. And actually, in Matt's debate with Mike Icona, I think it was, he actually said this. He, He criticized William Lane Craig for presuming God's existence for a debate on the resurrection, as if that's just a given. But that's just because of the debate question. He's not just presuming God's existence. Typically, the way he would function is to show that God exists and then show that God raised Jesus from the dead, because it would make it plausible, as far as I'm concerned, to use Matt Dillahunty's uh, uh, uh terminology there uh but 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 here's an interesting thing about Matt I think that I can't tell you where this was or point to the video but but if I'm wrong someone I mean I, I know it's out there that that Matt was talking about how he was kind of annoyed or didn't understand why Christians only wanted to seemingly to debate so often does God exist instead of does the Christian God exist or did Jesus rise from the dead? It's almost like it was easier for christians to just argue for god's existence why not have the courage of your convictions and debate does your god the christian god exist? well i knew that he thought that way or or had said that so when we scheduled our debate i was offered the opportunity to suggest a topic or a debate question so i suggested does the christian god exist and i'm going to have the courage of my convictions and throw it out there show that god exists or that show that jesus rose from the dead and that's what i presented in uh in, in our uh, in our debate um but what's weird about that as you're going to see in just a few moments is that when it's just does god exist he wants why aren't you arguing for the christian god specifically but when the resurrection is brought to argue specifically we we either get a dismissal of that whole case or in this uh debate we get generalities and those claims aren't evidence which is a refusal Again, a kind of lazy one to get in and dig out the details. I'm going to show you more of what I'm talking about um, here in just a moment. Uh let, let's take a look at uh let's look at uh uh this one where Matt, where Mike is trying to get Matt to engage and dig down. Listen, we're just looking for a defeater. We're not saying that you know the fact of the matter, Matt. We just want you to dig down and defend something as a defeater and get into the get into the weeds with us here. Let's argue this thing out. This is a debate. Come on, man. And here's here's how that goes. The problem I have with this is that these are just super vague generalities. I want to hear you take these generalities
1: and apply them specifically to the details around the death and resurrection of Christ.
2: No, what you're asking me to do is to prove facts wrong. And it's, in, it's irrelevant as to whether or not I can do that, as I said at the outset. These aren't vague things I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is not evidence against the resurrection. It is a demonstration of an epistemology that is sound, and the
0: resurrection claims do not rise to that level it's a demonstration or an explanation of an epistemology that is just your favorite epistemology that can't be applied to anyone else for the reason that i'm about to give you and i've said this many times in previous debate reviews where matt dillahunty was present and so i'm just you're going to hear it again but here's the thing matt dillahunty's epistemology is is contains this problem so on the top end in terms of certainty or evidence we have Cartesian certainty, right? The, the, The absolute certainty. Matt has admitted before, he doesn't think you can have Cartesian certainty even about your own existence. You can't know for sure without the possibility of doubting even that you exist, all right? So nothing can rise to that level. So we shouldn't have to worry about that. But then what he says is he wants a demonstration of the supernatural, a demonstration that God exists, a demonstration that Jesus rose from the dead. And when asked, as we're gonna see in this debate, what would that demonstration look like? Where is that line where now we can, if we present you with this, then okay, that's enough evidence, that's sufficient evidence. And Matt says, I don't know. Okay, well, that's a part of your epistemology that you've got to work out, because what Matt would like is he's holding everyone else to this. He's saying, here's my epistemology, and I think other people should also hold this epistemology because he says um, it doesn't these things don't rise to what um, should convince people. Okay, then that means if if you don't think it should convince not just you, but anyone else, then you want your epistemology to be capable of being offloaded onto other people's systems and worldviews. They should follow your epistemology. But you're missing a serious piece of that epistemology, one that is important if we're going to have this discussion at all. The discussion that you live in worldview discussions about religion is where is the line where now we can say, okay, if you meet this level, now it's a demonstration. Now we can we can believe something. The problem is that if there's if, if you're saying certainty isn't possible, so we don't have to give you certainty, but you don't tell us where that level of I would believe if you gave me this and you're telling us something like someone parting an ocean in Jesus name wouldn't count, wouldn't convince you. We don't know where that line is. And until you give it to us. You can just sit back and subjectively of your own opinion say that doesn't convince me that doesn't convince me that doesn't convince me. And as we saw at the top of this, that means that the debate becomes what convinces Matt, and what gets smuggled in is whatever doesn't convince Matt is what also shouldn't convince you because he said that his epistemology represents what what should or shouldn't convince other people. And the fact is, we don't know there's a missing piece. Where is the level? where we should be convinced, which I don't think Matt intends to do this. I don't think this is a tactic, but what it results in practically in practice is that Matt becomes the arbiter of what should be convincing for anyone that holds his epistemology. I actually had someone admit, an atheist on the last stream, admit to me, yeah, I think that it is true that 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 we don't, you know, that Matt doesn't the certainty thing and that um, we don't know what would convince us, and we so we haven't provided that, but that's perfectly fine. Well, okay, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Matt can believe whatever he wants to believe. But when you're presenting it as though this is a sound epistemology, and what you're saying shouldn't convince anyone, how do we know? You haven't told us where that is. You're just telling us subjectively in, in your heart of hearts it doesn't convince you. And then the implication is it shouldn't convince anybody else because you're not convinced. That's not how debates work. That's not how sound epistemology works. I'm sorry, that's just incorrect. And I think it's important to point all of that out. But also we have here a running away from having to defend an alternative hypothesis. And there are some atheists that say this, don't try to get into offering an alternative hypothesis to the resurrection. And I would never say something this direct, but to quote my colleague and friend, Jonathan Pritchett, He has said, yeah, the reason they don't want to present and defend an alternative hypothesis, even as a possible defeater, is because every time they do, it gets shredded by the facts. And I think there's some truth to that. In fact, we saw the same thing when I gave Matt what I thought he wanted. Let's debate, does the Christian God exist? And so I presented a case for God's existence and a robust case for the resurrection. And after saying, well, you're just giving me what the scholars believe, which, hey, I was happy to get down in the weeds and argue out the reasons why the scholars believe what they believe. But, but after all of that, what, what Matt did was the following. Is it the case that you're not offering a competing hypothesis to the resurrection tonight? Correct. Okay. Um, yeah, correct. Okay, well, so when somebody doesn't offer a case for the resurrection that will involve you getting in the weeds and arguing these things out, um, well, why are these apologists just arguing for God's existence? But then when we bring the resurrection case, yeah, I'm not gonna get in the weeds and do that. I'm gonna throw out these generalities um, that some other people have, I'm going to obliquely reference that legend, uh, possibly conspiracy, I don't know if you brought that up. Um, they were just deceived or confused or whatever else. Uh, I'm sorry, this doesn't work. When you point it out, you don't see it in debate if you are not if you haven't thought through this. Um, but I don't know that anybody has thought more about the, the debate strategy of Matt Dillahunty than I have. And I'm sitting here telling you, when you get it pointed out to you, you should see it clear as day. You should see that what we're looking at is rhetoric and confidence but you're not seeing content and without the content you shouldn't be persuaded and the persuasion that you're experiencing is merely emotional and it may impress you but it's not based on content and that is an important important thing we see that again his problems with his epistemology when it comes to the circular logic that seems to be involved with his uh discussion of what it would take for the supernatural to be demonstrated. And Matt tries to get into that here or Mike tries to so get So you into seem it. to
1: be arguing against both sides. One side is you're arguing against the evidence itself, in which case I'm trying to say generalities don't do it. We need details. And then you're also saying epistemologically that you can't conclude the resurrection because and this, Correct. this sounds like circular reasoning because it's, it's not circular. circular. You can't yeah. Prove it until you prove it. I'll I'll reject the evidence that proves it because you have to prove it, but I won't allow evidence it, to prove the thing that I'm saying you can't prove it It just seems painfully circular.
2: No, sir. Circular reasoning is when the conclusion is entailed in the premise. And my conclusion is not the resurrection didn't occur or that supernatural can't occur. My conclusion is that the resurrection hasn't met its
0: burden of proof. So what is Mike referring to when he says the supernatural? You got to prove it to prove it and it's circular and all that. Well, whether you think it's circular or not, here's here's what he's talking about. He actually mentioned it. In his opening, or he he headed it off in his opening statements because this is a thing that Matt has done in the past, which is to say you can't invoke a supernatural explanation like God did it or God is the explanation with all no matter what you want to say because you have to first show that that is a possible explanation. Well, how would you show that as a possible explanation by demonstrating the supernatural? But this is the demonstration of the supernatural. No, because you haven't shown that a supernatural can be a demonstration. Okay, here's a demonstration of the supernatural: the resurrection. No. you you can't use that because you haven't shown the supernatural. If it's not circular, it's an infinite regress. There's something wrong with it. And here is Matt heading it off um early on in his opening statements. There's another one. You Mike, can only sorry. offer,
1: and this is a quote from from Matt from previous debate. I heard uh, you can't offer a supernatural explanation until you prove the supernatural is possible. But this is this is this is the proof. This evidence for the resurrection is the proof that the, that something supernatural happened. So what we're doing is we're ignoring. We're saying the evidence won't count until you have evidence to prove the thing. But do you, does anyone else see this? This is I circular see reasoning. I, I'm ruling it out. I'm not looking at the evidence. <laughs> I see. a ways Mike. of
0: avoiding the evidence. It's a way of avoiding the evidence, he says. So uh, I really want you to see this. Mike is pointing out something very important. He's thought a lot about Matt's epistemology. And this goes right back to, I don't know what, what, what would count as demonstration. This goes right back to, you have to demonstrate the supernatural in order for the supernatural to be a possible candidate explanation. But yet when we try to offer a, an evidence for the supernatural, uh, you throw that out because we haven't demonstrated the supernatural. This, this just isn't, this is... Heads I win, tails you lose. It it doesn't it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, uh, but then then we get into an important part of this. We move away from the epistemology, and I'm trying to show you here again that what Matt, Mike brought in this was historical stuff, sociocultural stuff, like about the road systems and the time in history and all those kind of things, uh, literary evidence, what the scholars say, what the experts say, all these kind of things. And what what Matt is bringing is generalities and dismissing it all without getting into the weeds and arguing it out and rhetoric and confidence and mockery. Well, here now we come to the mockery and. And I, I thought it was great because Mike is so good; uh, he's such a nice guy um, that that I was kind of stro- shocked that he got this straightforward. But I'm glad that he did because it needed to be called out. Isn't that preposterous? Do you think zombies marched on Jerusalem? And I, I think that that is a
1: is a is a really ridiculous way to put it. And zombies, well, like, hold on a second. Let's be mature here. Is that this is this is what I see all the time when I encounter and engage with the atheist community. It is constant mockery. It's like painful for Christians. They asked me, how do you handle it, Mike? Because the constant mockery of Christian faith, like, let's just take it straight, Matt. There's no zombies in scripture. It talks about 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 several people who were re- raised raised saints coming into the city this however has nothing to do with my case there are I'm there are the scholars who would reject i don't reject it but who would reject that account in matthew they still would accept the facts that i've given you today yeah. so you're shifting the burden of proof to where i'm supposed to prove i'm not i was sure to talk I'm, about a historical case for the resurrection
2: i was asked to explain something and i'm trying to do so the reliability of of scripture in general is key to whether or not we can ride about it on the other things. The facts that historians will attest to, and by the way, some of them attest to more than I think they should, are simply mundane things. It's not like there's historians who are saying, yes, the resurrection occurred,
0: yeah, but see, we all know that. None of us think that the scholars, all the scholars are saying that the resurrection occurred. What we do is we take the bedrock facts. By the way, bedrock, so for something to count, this is in Michael Icona's resurrection uh, of Jesus, the new historiographical approach, but it's also uh, Jonathan Pritchett, my colleague, did an episode responding to Godless Engineer in which he he threw out like 20 books 20 books on historiography that all had th- th- points like this in it, that a bedrock fact in historiography is when you have something that f- that meets two um, two criteria. One, the, the fact that you're calling a bedrock fact um, is highly evidenced, and number two, it enjoys the consensus of scholarship. So what Mike is doing with his 12 facts that he gives, or at least most of them, I think, maybe all of them, in his opening statements, is he's giving you the bedrock facts. He's giving you what all the scholars agree about. Now, Matt is right that we it's helpful if the Gospels are reliable historical documents, and so he's trying to show that they aren't historical reliable uh, reliable historical documents. and so maybe we shouldn't trust them on things. I get that that's the only place you can go with this, but here's the rub. Here's what you run up against. Number one, you sound a bit like the pastor that that, that you know that and I've probably said this before and shouldn't have when I was a pastor, something like, if one phrase in this Bible is false, then it's all false, which of course is just logically fallacious there are math books with errors in them. There are history books with errors in them, but they're still mostly true, right? Now, I don't think the Bible has those kind of errors, but I'm just saying it, it doesn't follow logically. Second, um, the, the the thing that you need to understand about this is all of the historians agree, like I don't know of anybody, like even Richard Carrier and Bob Price, I think, agree that there are historical uh, elements in the Gospels—they're not—they realize that there is historical truth in the Gospels, even if they think that stuff is false around it, or even if they think that Jesus didn't exist. It, they're not denying that there is historical information in the New Testament and in the Gospels. So the, the question then becomes: Okay, which things? Um, do we have good reason to believe are historically reliable, are true historical facts that we can draw from those documents? And that's where the debate lies. And so what Mike does, to, because we have limited time in a debate and to make the strongest case that he can, even though Mike believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, he's going to take those things that he, all of the scholars seem to agree, uh, at least universally or, or they have the consensus, are the bedrock facts. And we're going to take those and build out our case from that um that's what you want to do that's that's how you do this now back to the mockery here this is the same as when matt points at the sacrificial system or jesus on the cross and says it's blood magic this is this is tying it to when he says zombies in in the bible by the way what he's talking about there is in matthew 27 verses 51 through 53 we have saints raised who had died raising up out of the graves and walking around uh because of the incredible event that the resurrection was uh, or the crucifixion and then the resurrection was so um so he calls that zombies uh, and, and people have called jesus a zombie richard carrier has too um most of this stuff that matt brings out has been trotted out by previous atheists making the same sort of jokes you get it from bill maher you get it from um uh richard carrier you might get some from bart Ehrman, although he's a little bit more cautious and scholarly in his approach than some of the others are but the zombie thing and the blood magic thing it's an attempt to tie it to something that you already think is silly on the face of it and say, see, it's like that. And it's kind of like a poisoning of the well. It's not the way we're supposed to do it. And so I like that Mike calls him out on this and says, come on, let's be mature about this. Let, let's, let's talk about it like it is. But the mockery is strong. I've said this before. <clears throat> and It's not that mockery can't be an important tool of persuasion. It can be, and it is there from biblical characters in the Bible. But those biblical characters also had content behind what they were saying. And what we see from Matt is a dismissal, um, uh, you know, uh, this glib certainty that this is this. Well, not certainty. I don't know about things and and uh, generalities and that you're, you're just giving me claims, not evidence and not getting into it. And then mockery, mocking it. So there's no content that stands behind that mockery. And so that shouldn't be persuasive to anyone that Mike is right to say, let's be mature about this, because Mike's trying to be a friendly open patient guy who's trying to talk about the facts and what he gets is this stuff and again i love matt but that is not a forceful presentation and it's it may be forceful in terms of persuasion but it shouldn't be intellectually forceful and i think that's an important thing so i know i'm saying some strong things here but i want people to think through this stuff And I want people to think about what should convince them versus what might happen to convince them. All right, so um, let's move on to another thing here. And this became a big issue in the discussion. I I may not spend as much time on this. Uh, This is like a seven-minute clip, so I'm not going to play all of it. I'm just going to play a portion so you can see what's going on. But they got into this discussion where Matt was trying to say, the way or yeah, Matt was saying the way that Jesus appeared to individuals in the Bible or groups seems to be different in different cases. For instance, with Paul, it seems to have been uh, a different kind of appearance than it was for, you know, some of the others. All right, let's 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 take a look at, at that and see a little bit about what, what he has to say there.
2: By the way, as you read it, they see him in different ways. Paul has or Saul has this road to Damascus thing with an apparition. Uh, James doesn't tell us. Wait, can, about, we, can
1: we talk about Paul for a minute? You say apparition. How do you establish that that what Paul saw was an apparition? Well, what's his description? Well, it's your case. You're the one that said he saw an apparition. So I want to I, make I, I like a very robust very would, quick case against that. But I'd like to hear you make a case for it. Despite what you think, I am not
2: trying to straw man Christianity. Um Paul's description, uh let's see, make sure I'm getting it accurately. Uh the men with, with him uh stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. Um so I'll just read it. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters of the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anybody. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him away by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was, he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. Um, I don't know how to describe that other than a, a vision. It's not like there was, At no point does it say there was a person there. Saul was blinded and heard a voice. Um, I don't mean that... Oh, I bet I said apparition earlier. If I said apparition earlier, then I'll retract that. It was a a sloppy word to describe a non-physical manifestation. Does
1: it make sense? Non-physical. So do you think that Paul thought Jesus was non-physical after his resurrection? So he describes himself as, or in Acts, Paul's described as seeing Jesus. Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Um, not him seeing Jesus, that's him hearing Jesus. The event, the event, um, if I said seeing, sorry, he's described as encountering Jesus. I'm yeah, Jesus. We both did the same thing with seeing an apparition, so we'll call it a drill. It had It had a actual effect and impact on those around him. Um, a light shone from heaven around him. Others, Other people saw that as well, it seems. This is, this is a, some kind of a group experience. Uh, falling to the ground, he heard a voice. So he fell to the ground. This thing caused him to fall to the ground.
0: Okay, so uh, we're going to skip to the end in a minute, but what I want to show you is happening here. First of all, Mike called out Matt on, uh, you know, a, 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 like Matt said, a sloppy phrase that he used. Um, this is somewhat like when, um, it seems like every time, maybe this is why Matt, doesn't like to make claims instead he likes to say i don't know because when matt makes a claim he gets called out on it quite a bit and then has trouble defending the claim so it happened in the debate with mike lycona matt said something like that G- that paul never encountered jesus during jesus life and earthly ministry and then mike says mike lycona says how do you know that can you defend that this is why I'm just presuming based on what it says. Look, Paul's at sometimes probably at the temple and, and uh, Jesus was at the temple. I mean, you can't say it. So this is an interesting thing that comes out here. But, um, but, but what's happening here is what begins to happen is Mike is... Okay, so I've written down here what I think is happening. Okay, I've, I, these are paraphrased statements of what I think they're saying. These are not direct quotes. But Matt is saying something like, I'm saying what happened to Paul is not what happened to the disciples right the appearance of jesus or whatever is is not to paul is not like what happened to the disciples to make a point that we don't have uniformity or something here mike is saying paul's expression of the resurrection as bodily like in first corinthians 15 informs what he experienced here as if to say what you're talking about here i guess in acts 9 or whatever seems ambiguous we don't get all the information we'd like so let's look at what Paul thought about the resurrection, say in 1 Corinthians 15, that it was bodily. He makes a little argument for that there, um, that Paul thought it was bodily, which informs that what Paul experienced there on the road to Damascus was likely bodily in that in that same way. And Matt says, but but here's the confusion. Matt says, I'm not saying Paul believed in a spiritual rather than bodily resurrection, because that is something that sometimes liberal Christians like in the Jesus seminar will argue or atheists will argue that that no, 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 what what the disciples understood, what Paul understood was that Jesus, or at least what Paul understood was that Jesus had a spiritual rather than a bodily or physical resurrection. And so Matt's trying to say, that's not what I'm saying happened here. I'm just saying there's not uniformity among the cases. Uh, He thinks that Mike's responding to a bumper sticker type allegation that it was a spiritual rather than a physical resurrection. But that's not what Mike is saying. Mike's saying I uh, I know that, that that's not what you're saying, but what I'm saying is if you look at, there is uniformity or it could be or might be uniformity because when you look at what Paul says about Jesus elsewhere in more clear cases, he's talking about a bodily Jesus. So it's likely that there, there was a bodily Jesus. At least that's how I understood all of this. Uh, let's listen to the next clip and 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 hear, or let's listen to um, the end of that clip and see how it turned By out. By the way, as you read it, not in any way presenting this
2: case that you're defending against which other atheists have presented which is like saul never knew of jesus and never thought about jesus in the terms of bodily thing this all happened in some uh apparitions in sp- in space in a spiritual area here that's not what i'm defending against that's at all that is exa- you were defending against a position that he and others have offered which i have not presented and all it's doing is distracting from from actually getting to me addressing the points
1: let me offer just two words for the last sake of clarity here. I'm not saying, all I'm saying is if we're asking in Acts 9, what did Paul see according to the story, we should not conclude based on Acts 9, it was a bodiless Christ because we have a lot of other, you know, support that what he thought he saw was a physically risen Christ.
2: So now we're back to what I retracted seven or eight minutes ago, and it was only a sloppy word that never meant to imply that in the
1: first place. Okay. Well, I, I was, you, what, you, you what saying, which I've been listening for, and I asked you to back it up and it, I'm glad you retracted it
0: yeah uh, but but the interesting thing about this is that what Matt has done is Matt wouldn't let Mike talk he cuts him off multiple times throughout this thing because what he's trying to say is I know where you're going with this Mike I already know what you're arguing um and and, and I'm not doing that when in he thought Mike was bringing some you know prefab response to a typical claim that it's a spiritual rather than bodily resurrection what's ironic about that is that's not what Mike was doing. But Matt was trying to respond like that to something. And Mike was saying, no, you need to And this is great because Matt typically says, don't tell me what I'm saying. I'm right here. Ask me what I'm saying. I think that happened in the Dinesh D'Souza debate. Don't hypothesize about what you think I'm going to argue or what I'm arguing. Let I'm sitting right in front of you. Let me tell you what I'm arguing. And finally, when he settles down, Mike is able to say, right, I'm that's not what I'm saying. And if I understand Mike correctly, what Mike is saying is no, there's there is possibly uniformity among the appearances of Jesus because the situation there on the road to Damascus is ambiguous, but when you compare it to what Jesus saw bo- or what Paul experienced or what Paul talks about about Jesus being bodily later, it informs the the ambiguous the road to Damascus thing that Paul may genuinely have experienced a bodily um. Uh, Jesus there. So, but, but, you know, Mike has to kind of leave it and say, well, at least you retracted it and let's move on. But um, I only misspent spent so much time on that because it was a big part of the debate. But now let's get back to this point that we're getting a lot of mockery here. And I'm going to give Matt the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he didn't intend to mock, but Mike does call it out as kind of a marginalization of Mike's position here. So let's listen to that. I'm not advocating the swoon theory.
2: I cannot rule it out. Even if I knew for a fact that he was stabbed with a spear, that doesn't necessarily rule it out. My question was, how did it enter the story? It's not the spear part that was objectionable or questionable as much as bleeding water until, or bleeding until there was nothing but water, because that is the thing that would attest to death.
1: Not Are you familiar here? with the medical research that's gone into this content specifically about the death of Christ, the blood and water being poured out?
2: I don't know. Am I familiar with the medical research on the blood of Christ? There
1: is none. It's, I, I think you're purposely marginalizing what I just said. I, I, I'm trying to understand it. Okay, so when Jesus was pierced, blood and water poured out. Sure. And it used to have one of two causes. Either the pericardium around the heart was pierced, in which case blood and water would pour out, or Jesus had died through the typical way someone dies on the cross, asphyxiation, and then the uh, the water in the lungs was gathering as a result after his death. So the piercing would have confirmed it. And sure. I mean, the purpose of the piercing would be to confirm it. It would be to get blood and water to pour out to make sure the guy was dead.
2: Yeah. And this is a prime example of what I objected to in the opening. The way that you go about phrasing things is and I apologize, but considering I've already been on called on the carpet for zombies, sloppy, because when you ask me about are you familiar with the medical research involved with the piercing of Christ? The answer is, there is none. If instead it would be, do you understand what the reason for that might've been or what the explanations for why there might've been blood and water? Yes, of course
0: I've heard about those things. Okay, so of course you've heard about those things. Now, again, maybe Matt genuinely misunderstood, but I was under the impression that because Matt is in so many of these worldview discussions, surely he knew what I knew, which is that there have been medical doctors who have offered possible explanations for what was going on. Uh, if you have blood and water coming out after a spear is plunged into the side of Jesus. Um, uh, you know, Knowing what we know from the text, if we're taking that to be accurate, what would be a possible medical explanation for that? And does it match what we know from good science and good medicine? I'm aware of those things. I would have thought that Matt was aware. And it sounds like in the end, maybe he was. And so it's and especially given what we've already had with zombies and all these other things and blood magic and, and all this. And it's reasonable, at least don't don't get on to Mike for the. It's reasonable, at least that he thinks that you're just, again, being intentionally obtuse or trying to uh represent Christianity with as silly a terminology as you possibly can. Maybe that's not what was going on. Maybe Matt was really misunderstood. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. But I thought that was an interesting moment that again comes back to this whole thing of is it, it are we mocking what's going on here? Then in the question and answer time, there was this interesting moment where Matt says something that I don't believe he he couldn't have been very confident about what he was saying when he said this. I just I can't believe that he was confident when he said it. And it's this we'll we'll get to it now. We've only got two clips left so stick with me. He says, you've said that you can't know if Jesus'
2: cruc- crucifixion is historical, yet Erman, Crossan, and Ludemann state that it is a historical event. Do you have evidence they're wrong? No. Okay, that was quick. All right. Uh, how, about, how about another one? It's an irrelevant question. The fact that somebody is convinced of something, and I'm not... Doesn't mean that I'm we've now shifted the burden of proof to saying, oh, Matt must provide evidence that they're wrong. No, if you want to take Ehrman's word for it, that's fine. But I find it funny that Christians and others will cite Ehrman to the extent that they agree with him and then utterly disregard them when he, when he acknowledges that he's an atheist who doesn't accept the resurrection. This is convenient citing, and if his epistemology that led him to one conclusion is consistent with the other conclusion, then it's the people that are selectively citing him who are being hypocritical. I'm just saying
0: I'm not convinced in the way that he is. Okay, we're hypocrites. We're hypocrites if we point to where our opponents agree with us. This, This... I can't believe he was confident in making this. He had to feel weird about making this statement because, look, um, both sides do this all the time. And it's perfectly fine. Right now, Laura Robinson, who is a Ph.D. candidate, I think at Duke, who's a historian, um, is is been on a lot of the atheist shows because she says things that are critical of the way that apologists argue for the resurrection of jesus and so um people like shannon q and pine creek and others have had her on the show because they are delighted to find an opponent who is a christian who agrees with them about some of these things that's perfectly fine i don't i you know my my opinions about whether she should be doing that the way she is or whether she's right are irrelevant to the fact that it's perfectly fine for them to point that out it's perfectly fine for us to point to Bart Ehrman and we don't deny that he's an atheist or an agnostic or whatever. We say that about him even as agnostic atheist Bart Ehrman who is no friend of Christianity even he admits that blah blah blah. What's this business that we're hypocrites if we don't buy then everything else that Ehrman says? Like we're hypocrites if we point out where he agrees with us unless we agree with everything else that the man says and, and conclude that there's no God. I just can't believe that Matt felt good when he made that statement about that. Maybe he did. Maybe there's I don't know. It it doesn't follow. It doesn't make any sense. That seems really strange to me. Um, Let's go back to this would be the last clip. This is Mike, um, and I think this is this is a good summative thing for the debate. But this this came to maybe the the most heated moment in the debate where Matt um, threatens to get up and leave. So let's listen to this. I've really
1: tried to understand your perspective. Um, And to me, the evidence is secondary to you Um, and if, if I was Matt Dillahunty, I, I think if I could categorize, it, I would say, I can come up with complaints about your evidence all day long. But in the end, there's a bigger obstacle for you, Mike, and that is, this is just plain irrational to believe, no matter what the evidence. So let me, let me put something on the table for you and get your input on it, okay? Um, let's suppose that Jesus did what you suggested, and he came right now today, and he was killed in an electric chair, and scientifically confirmed that he was dead, and then he came back to life, would you then believe God exists and that Jesus, uh, God had raised Jesus from the dead?
2: Oh, a very cleverly crafted question. No. Would I believe that Jesus was now alive again? Yes. And that was the thing that I was going to conclude my my opening with, was even if we establish the resurrection, we still don't know why or how it happened. That is an explanation that has to come secondary. That th- this You're right. This does get to the core here, because if, if Jesus had done the things th- that I said would be the best way to demonstrate it, would, I'm not even sure that that would necessarily be sufficient to convince me of a resurrection. It may be. When I say that I'm not sure what would convince me, I'm being honest, and I'm not saying nothing would convince me. Would it convince me of a resurrection? Maybe, possibly, probably, even very likely, had I had access to that actual evidence and rather than just reportings of that evidence. But my reason for raising that wasn't to show that that uh that this would also be unbelievable or this would be what would be believable it's to show that god picked a time to do this where none of that is available and that is stupid
1: okay so would you say this um if if i was you i would let me see. i'm gonna be i'm gonna be matt dillahunty for a second (laughs) tell me if i'm saying it right you failed last time but we'll get there (laughs) um I, I think you demonstrated that you wouldn't that no evidence effectively doesn't matter. But we'll put it this way. No,
2: no, no, you,
1: no. Can you conceive? Oh, my God. No, you conceive, I can't. I can't I can can't, see evidence, can any? Let me just get this out. No, I cannot let you get this out. You talked for like two minutes. I said one <laughs> sentence interrupt interrupting me. That's yes, because your sentence was to accuse me of evidence doesn't matter. That's how a debate works, Matt. You got to let me talk. this isn't your show, man. You got to let me talk. Um, I, I don't have to stay,
2: is what I'm saying. Would you stop characterizing me as if evidence doesn't matter, when what I've said to you is that evidence is all that matters, and the evidence for your claim does not rise to the level of reasonableness
1: in my estimation. Is there any conceivable evidence in your mind that would give you the resurrection of Christ and God did it? Is there any conceivable evidence?
2: I have no idea, as I've said umpteen times, and as you paraphrased me at the beginning, what that evidence would be which is completely irrelevant because I'm not saying that I can't be convinced I'm saying I don't know what would convince me but what I'm also saying is what has convinced other people is not a good standard of evidence because it does not exclude competing claims
0: says who says who matt it you you can't tell us what should convince but other stuff shouldn't convince because it doesn't uh it's not more likely than competing claims. Then give us a competing claim and let's get into the weeds and let's argue this out. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And I'm sorry, but you'll have to forgive Mike For coming to the conclusion when you say it takes a demonstration but i don't know what that demonstration looks like and you can't have cartesian certainty so i'm not expecting that but i get to be the arbiter of what what should be convincing to me and then other people should use my epistemology and all these things and someone could put a notion in jesus name but that still wouldn't convince me and and all these kind of things you you'll have to forgive mike for thinking that evidence is secondary he's being kind of pastoral here but also kind of direct and just it strikes me that evidence doesn't convince. It's not about the evidence for you. And and, and you know what, Matt, if you're going to use that epistemology that I just described, then guess what? The cost of doing business as you is in this arena, is that people are going to think that evidence doesn't matter to you. That's the cost of doing business. You can explain why it does. You can argue like you like get into the weeds and argue this out and, and deal with the evidence. But if you're not going to deal directly with the evidence if you're just going to say claims aren't evidence and you're going to give generalities but you're not going to get in and show how these competing claims are more likely than the resurrection or even just as likely as the resurrection or anywhere close if you're not going to get in there and do that evidential analysis with us then i'm sorry it's the cost of doing business as matt dillahunty is people are going to think evidence doesn't matter and i'm and and i think this should be pointed out as clearly as we can see. What I want you to see at the end of this debate is, throughout this discussion, what we've gotten from Mike is evidence, inference to the best explanation, experts, philosophy, history, uh, sociocultural stuff about Rome, all this stuff, what the experts say. What we got from Matt is a loud, confident, quick-witted dodging of the evidence, dodging of an alternative hypothesis, denial of reality that when and how Christianity emerged turned out to be actually brilliant and worked a clutching to an epistemology that results in a subjective and frankly fluid standard of evidence and mockery with that on the table, which I think we've demonstrated here, what you should be convinced by, what you should find persuasive are the facts of the matter. Mike Winger gave those to you. What might be persuasive, but shouldn't be persuasive are all of those things that I just discussed that Matt gave you in this debate. So however you feel like somebody did, this isn't WWF, this isn't UFC. This is supposed to be an intellectual discussion and a pursuit of truth. Someone had facts, someone dodged those facts, at least in my estimation. I know that Dillahunty and all of his fans would disagree with me, but it's the way I see it. So what should you do? You should subscribe to Mike Winger's channel, you should subscribe to this channel, but first, you should deeply consider these things and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you enjoy this kind of content, I'd love for you to help us out at Patreon.com/slash Trinity Radio, and uh, you'll get lots of free stuff: free episodes, five full seminary courses, um, and, and uh, powerpoints for all of them. Uh, a bunch of free eBooks from me and, and from others and uh, lost episodes and everything else. But listen, I've enjoyed this time that we've had together. I hope that you'll look for the truth and not the mockery. Look for the truth and not for rhetoric. Look for the truth and be persuaded by that rather than fancy words, rather than someone who's an eloquent speaker alone without any content to back it up. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.